You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. to bite into it where we discuss computers new technology new stuff to put on your wrists uh, all of that kind of stuff uh, tonight in the studio we have the man who puts the ripped in cryptocurrency it's kdm hi good evening everyone uh i'm with you also uh, i'm warren davies and a lifesaver uh swooping out of the cbd we have kent who's the silent producer working behind the panel um we owe kent a few beers that's true uh, this week on the show, uh, we'll be joined by uh, two people from uh, both Code for Australia and Code for America uh, to discuss local and international efforts to whip our uh, government digital services into shape. It's a bit of a hot area uh, internationally, and thankfully we're not falling behind in Australia, so we'll be talking through that. We'll also be taking a look at this week's huge piece of eye candy, the iWatch, uh, which we'll see on the arms of our friends and colleagues soon. The Dick, the Dick Tracy dream is nigh. Uh, pretty Kate. exciting. It is pretty exciting. Um, if you're looking for more ways to um, create general confusion around what's happening in your life and um, in your inbox, um, <laughs> you'll have that opportunity soon. Yeah, just basically just notifications nonstop on your wrist. Pretty should much. Should but first, we should probably take a look at what's happening uh, locally. There's uh, a couple of items that uh, caught our eye, so we might go through those. Um, one of the interesting things uh, that happened is, I guess, conversation that's that's perennial around uh, are we doing enough to support uh, technology businesses in Australia? Do we do enough to not so much give them a leg up but make sure that they're competitive with their contemporaries um, in New Zealand um, and, and around uh, around the world? Uh, Federal Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull uh, was singled out as an MP uh, doing the most to support startups in Australia uh, in a new survey by Startup Muster, which is an annual survey of uh, what's happening in the scene, what, um, what's working, what's not, who's doing good things, who's doing bad things. But the interesting thing was uh, he was probably one of only um, a handful of names that actually got remembered by these people, uh, a long way behind Don't Know and probably a little bit behind that guy who actually has that really big staff who starts Parliament um, at the start of every year. <laughs> Do you have a, a point of view on, on, on um, whether MPs generally are doing enough to, to help uh, startups? Well, I mean, so my background being with Coinja uh, as, as my day job, uh, we, I guess there's a general undercurrent in the startup community uh, that there's not really that much going on. Um, things like... In terms uh, of support. In terms of support, yeah. Uh, there's lots of things like attacks. We, a lot of people see things like the... Uh, the redefinement and, and the changes to the NBM as direct attacks on infrastructure in Australia and sort of not really helping Australia very well. And that particular um, that particular survey that you're re- referencing here is kind of like a partic- participation award for everybody. There's no real winners out of this, I don't think. No. <laughs> no, it is a shame. Uh, uh, it's, it's funny because um, there's actually quite a lot uh, of expectations set in Australia for the startup community um, because so many of us have ties to San Francisco, let's say, or Berlin, where there's lots and lots of startups and lots of successful people uh, in terms of the organisations that they're in, how much money they're able to raise, things like that. And because Australia is much smaller than these these other countries uh, and their communities are a lot smaller, we have this this constant uh, battle, I guess, where we've got to manage uh, the particular expectations that we have as a, as a whole in our community versus what's happening 
you know, in San Francisco and things like that. So what that typically means is that without the support from government and other organisations as well... Um, we will lose. We will continue to lose startups overseas, um, especially to, as I said, Europe, um, UK, and uh, Berlin. Uh, sorry, London and Berlin, and uh, United States as well. So it's a pretty sort of potent, almost a dire situation. I'd say it's not too bad yet, but if it sort of continues without much support, I can see that happening for sure. One of the uh, concerned um, uh, startup founders uh, of a successful business actually had a, um, a meeting with uh, Malcolm Turnbull and following that sent a fairly stinging email uh, <laughs> to outline a few ways that we could probably do better, which um, which is great. Um, so we'll put a link up to this uh, later on, but if you're interested, there is a uh, piece up on businessinsider.com.au. Uh, some of the issues uh, are identified and then some probably fairly sensible uh, low-cost solutions, as they're termed, to, to what we could actually do. So things such as modernising school curriculum, um, I know when I did sort of subjects related to this, it was very much Stone Age stuff. Um, that's definitely something that could be um, considered. Um, promoting the ASX as text funding source of choice. Yeah. So connecting it to, to people making money is, uh, is always a, a wise way to go. This one makes a heap of sense. We might talk to it a little bit later with the, the, the guys from um, Code, but um, government needs a chief technology officer. So, Kate, we kind of need a champion or someone who's going to speak for the industry. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's fairly obvious. Again, um, the main part being that we, you know, between all the laws that we're trying to put in place around data retention, things like that, things that will, once again, I feel, be quite negative to startup culture in Australia, alongside things like what's happened with the NBN and other initiatives, uh, we definitely need someone who's actually advocating for the technology sector, not just uh, startups, really, but even the greater, wider, established groups, um, ISPs, all the way through to the big um, cornerstones like Seek and other companies like that. Um, yeah, I can definitely see that having a, a, even a department in the government like that would be really helpful. So uh, we'll hopefully um, see some more news come out of that, uh, that that's come through um, uh, in recent days, but hopefully we'll get a statement from the uh, Federal Communications Minister on that uh, as to what we can what, what we can do better. I mean, it doesn't cost much money. It's just a bit of effort and a bit of sense. Yeah, the big one, I think, is the... Uh the educational side of things, that one's one that you could actually do rather well for very little money, whether it's actually modernising the school system itself and adding a little bit more uh, technological skill and, I guess, entrepreneurship to it as well, or whether it's just that you uh, fund initiatives that help to do that. Uh, we're, at CoinJar, we're very supportive of um, things like we've got a, work ex- a small work experience program that we've got running. Um, we're trialling that at the moment, and that's working out really well. But even that, we s- we've seen some... Um, a little bit of hostility, not so much from any one uh, person in particular, but just like the the, the general um, schooling system in total has been like either very supportive and very very clearly seeing why this is important, or sort of rather hostile towards those kinds of initiatives. And I think alongside either that funding or education uh, modernization, another thing we could do is just even get people on side around technology. Around I guess there's a, that fear still in the schooling system that. It because it's outside of the realm of understanding potentially of of, uh, of certain sectors of the education industry or the education community that it's not really a worthwhile thing to be studying or or really putting any time into. I think that needs to change quite a lot. I agree. 
Uh, one thing that also needs to change is uh, your uh, torrent client uh, <laughs> doing dodgy stuff on the sideline. Uh, Mo- yeah. Moonlighting as a, uh, as a as a miner, as it were. Um, some news has come through in the past uh, little while that uh, the popular torrent client uTorrent, um, which its website describes as light, limitless and elegant and efficient, um, four yeah. very good words, but also the fifth word being sort of um, caked in, caked in um, cryptocurrency as well because it's um, doing something on the side. So in, in simple terms, what, what would uTorrent be actually doing? Why, why would a torrent client be doing this on the side for us? Um, so there's a big split in... So I've heard a little bit about this. There's a big split between people. The main problem is that it seems to be installed as kind of like a, a, an adware kind of thing, like a sort of like a toolbar or something like that, where it sort of just installs itself unless you specifically tell it not to, which is not sure. great. Um, the reason why you would do that is because if, it, it's it's basically like BitTorrent, right? You have a... if you When, when you mine, you're basically using... Uh, it's basically a term that describes uh, a bunch of computers working together to, to uh, unlock the next block of Bitcoins. Mm. And the reason you would do that is you would be able to... Typically, you would spend a lot of money on... Uh, dedicated hardware that would let you do this and have yeah. it all in one place but in the same way as do you know the uh, folding at home project where um, it's basically um, looking at proteins and computing different protein um, things that uh, I can't remember what the um, but distributed com- computational power that's so right let, yeah. let's so get everyone to spend 1% of their hardware correct. on it yeah yeah, so that's exactly what it's doing. It's taking that same kind of concept of distributing um, the computing power and, and uh, I guess secretly installing itself on other people's computers which is not great. Sounds kind of nasty Hmm? Sounds kind of nasty. So, so what, what should you do if you've got uTorrent? What, what would you advise if you're using it at the moment? Stop using it. Stop using it. <laughs> Uninstall it. Install it. Install an older version. Um, use well, a different I don't client. know. Like, I don't particularly use. I, I'm on a Mac, so if I were like, if I had a torrent client, it'd be something really like open source and simple. I think yeah. that's really ultimately it, right? Like, old, mm. uh, open source software is going to be the one that's, that's not going to, you know, screw you over. Screw you over. <laughs> um, so on that note, and uh, talking about keeping things simple, um, we'd like to introduce uh, our two guests uh, for this evening. Uh, Code for Australia believes government can work for the people, by the people uh, in the 21st century. So uh, it's a network of civic technologists building uh, open source technology, uh, as we just mentioned, and uh, essentially an organising place for people to, to take on some of the challenges um, that government uh, can present to us with their digital technology. Um, Alvaro Maz is from Code for Australia, and we're also joined by Giselle Sperber uh, from Code for America. Uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for coming in. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us. Uh, so, code, code for any country. Um, why, does, why does any country need somebody standing up for code? That's, that's probably the, the starting point. So, what does Code for All um, believe in? Um, so, we are, I guess, a network of, of people that believe that government can work better. And um, to do that, we need more collaboration, more transparency, and um, we need um, we believe that technology can enable a lot of change. Um, so, it's it's basically that is the the big broad picture, and how that is um, seen in different countries is um, it varies. Hmm. And so, is there is there no sort of single champion, or is is it not a responsibility of the government to be championing what needs to happen in terms of um, digital assets or you know, sort of access points to to services? What, why is it not something that government is, has traditionally been doing? 
So I guess the the, the analogy that we like to use at, at Code for Australia is that um, government has realized that um, they can't do everything. Um, they have a million different things that they need to do, but they can't do everything. So they need to move into towards being a, more of a platform. And the, the example that I like using is being more like um, a smartphone. So 10, 15 years ago, you had a, a Nokia or a Motorola, and everything was designed, all the programs and all the functionalities were designed by one um, company. And now you have a smartphone that allows developers from anywhere in the world to give you an option to have um, silly apps, but also super cool apps. Yeah, great. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of government as a platform, and anyone can go in and start building something on the top of it or, um, you know, meet a solution or kind of solve a problem or something like that. Uh, so, Giselle, what's, what's your experience been? How, how did you come to um, Code for America, and, and how do you find yourself in Australia, uh, working with Code for Australia? All good questions. Um, I came to Code for America after working in technology, and I'm a user experience designer. That's my background, and I had worked in educational technology for a very long time. And I was just really captured by Code for America's mission, which is to sort of bring all the technology that we take for granted, all paying bills on your phone, doing all those things, and bringing that to government and to the services for the people who need it the most. So I was a fellow last year, and Code for America runs a fellowship program where fellows come with their talents from technology, be it designers or developers or um, activists, urban designers, come, and then they're partnered with cities all over America about teams of three or four. So that was how I spent my last year with Code for America. So for local governments or local councils or even state or federal governments, it must be a fairly strange thing to have this sort of young person coming in with a whole bunch of technical skills that they're either afraid of or aren't particularly aware of. Is it a is it a interesting learning experience for both sides? Is it sort of generally successful? Or um, you often find that when you say start a new job, for example, it takes you know six or twelve months to get your feet under the desk and get things working. How do you make sure that it's a mutually beneficial relationship really quickly? So the cities that participate or the states apply to Code for America just like the fellowship application. So both the fellows and the cities are really eager to get involved. So that narrows down to cities that really have their eye. Often they're cities who have a CIO or a CTO, so we're moving in that direction. Um, But yes, it really is a short period of time, and I think the goal is really to demonstrate what's possible. We're not going to be able to do everything. We're going to be doing a small amount of work and sort of opening both the fellow's eyes to what opportunities are available in government and the government's eyes to what it looks like to partner with a really diverse group of people. Do the Code for America uh, fellowships, are they primarily technology-based or is there sort of policy-based, I guess, fellowships as well? Right now... Or projects, I mean. Right now they really do center around a technology piece, but it does vary. Um, This year Puerto Rico participated. Wow. And... They were much more interested in sort of an economic development, um, but there definitely is a technology piece because we really believe in, Code for America really believes in making and the process of making together being part of the innovation. Is it- over the kind of history of the code, code for kind of movement, have there been um, any specific examples of things that have been done really well as civic projects or kind of community distributed tech, tech solutions? Whether it's something like, you know, uh, Google's always done a great job with disaster responses and trying to build something around, um, you know, a natural disaster to help people do things or 
I remember an example where um, there's a, an African country where more money changes hands on mobile phones and just sort of quick sort of money transfers than in the entire sort of Western Union network uh, around the world. Is there any sort of hero examples that, that you guys look to and go, if we could just have some of those things locally with our partners, we'd be really happy? I guess one um, silly and, and super modest example that is often used by Code for America is um, um, in Boston, one of the first fellowships um, in, in um, the U.S., they created a, an app to adopt a fire hydrant. So the problem was that um, it snowed and fire hydrants got um, covered in snow, and then it was really hard for the city to maintain those fire hydrants unsnowed. Um, so they created a um, an app to for people to to adopt a fire hydrant and sort of um, take care of the fire hydrant and you can name the fire hydrant if it was uncovered. Um, so that was a success in Boston and that was replicated then in Hawaii. Not that it snows in Hawaii but there's a lot of um, sirens um, that need to be like checked whether if there's going to be a hurricane. So that was um, how it got replicated into Hawaii and one thing that I've always thought about is that we could even do that here in um, in Melbourne um, with trees. So trees is this, there's this big um, thing in the city of Melbourne that um, trees, um, there's, a, there's a lot of work being put into trees. So how can we make sure that we maintain it? Um, yes, there are the options of um, having rangers and, and all this other stuff, but there's also kind of like the, the fun crowdsourcing ways to do things. Yeah. There's um, there's actually um, something that we mentioned on our first show back for the year where they are tracking all the trees in Melbourne and they've actually mapped them. And because of the device that they've actually installed to it, it's easy enough to set up an email account for it. So you can actually have a relationship with the tree. You can choose a tree. I don't know if you can find it easily enough, but if you've got your heart set on a particular tree, maybe you can just do that yourself, which is which is great. Um, so in, in terms of Code for Australia, it's a, it's a relatively new thing. Um, have there been any – has there been a, a mission on what we're trying to do here locally? or is there um, uh, a, a direction that everyone can line up behind and go, okay, I, I totally agree with what they're doing there and you know, my skill set's useful to that or I want to be a fellow? What, what would you guys like to achieve locally? Mm. So I guess um, so. we launched last year and I guess the first thing that we, we um, did last year was um, find out whether the model of Code for America was somehow replicable to the, the Australian context. And the good news is that it is. Um, and there's a lot of um, appetite for... Um, this um, the work that we're doing and what we're um, moving towards to this year is to line up um, the program that Giselle um, worked on in, in the US which is the fellowship and very similar to um, what it's done in what they do in the states is going to be centered on um, uh, I guess a large, there's going to have a large component of technology but it's also bringing designers involved um, and and also community develop um, community organizers. So maybe we'll, we'll, there's a couple of things that interest me there. There's the the fellowship and the, the civic lab, which maybe we'll come back to. But what, what was the thinking behind the fellowship? Maybe um, Giselle around you need somebody to spend six months or a year or more um, with, with these issues. What, what was the problem there, and, and how did they arrive at that? So I think that the starting point was a lot of the foundations of the projects really rely on open data and transparency and so I think that the notion was to invite people into the city to help cities achieve the process of opening their data and since that's a little bit of a longer process I think that's why the fellowship was in essence it's a year it's a little bit shorter um, 
But I think also the goal was to really foster those partnerships and encourage people for the future to look outside, look to the community for developers and technologists, and then also to really entice many developers and technologists don't think when they wake up in the morning, I'm going to go work for the government to make a difference. And I think that it's really trying to encourage people to think about that as an option. Do, do you find that um, in terms of civic mindedness, um, I mean, there's probably some big differences between the two countries in terms of civic mindedness and what we're proud of and what we're willing to support. Do, do you think people do wake up and go, you know, I need to find a better way to, like, uh, I'm a big fan of what they did in New York with their chief technology officer and sort of um, spotting potholes and um, spotting bikes that have been chained up for polls for too long and, and stuff like that. Was it was it natural for people to go, I'm, I'm going to apply sort of some fairly, um, not invisible, but sort of fairly cerebral skill sets into something that I can't sort of show my parents or my grandparents, um, you know, at, at Thanksgiving? What, what, what was the catalyst to get people to actually do stuff that often has intangible sort of outputs? From a fellow standpoint or...? Oh, more, more broadly. I mean, across Code for America, what, what was the thing that made people go, yeah, I want to... I want to do that i think that many people have the urge and i've seen this um around the country to get involved but it's just hard to understand where they can get involved and how to make that impact and i think that the beautiful thing about technology is that you can do it in a distributed way so if you have a couple of minutes it's a way to contribute so i think that that really captures people's imagination maybe i'm a developer and i really i have young children i can't participate in a community meeting i can't go in person but maybe i can spend time using my map skills and doing that so i think that that's a lot of the fellows come from a community-minded point of view but wanting to take a different approach Okay, and, and locally um, on the, the fellowship side of things, is there opportunities for fellows to, to get involved now or what's the process if you go, you know, I'd love to be involved for Code for Australia either this year or next year, um, how does one get involved as a fellow? Sure, so we're lining up um, most of the fellowships to happen in the new financial year, um, but we do have a really short mini fellowship um, at the moment and it's a three-month um, gig to go in between the city of Ballarat, Geelong and Melbourne to um, do a bit of community organizing. So this is, yes, it's um, there is a technical component, but the greatest component of this is um, community organizing and preparing those um, um, councils to participate in GovHack. Okay. And, and what sort of skills would you be looking for in, in this person or what do they, what do they need to be doing? So one is, um, I guess, we will um, be looking at, again, at community organizing, so someone who is who's really um, um, knowledgeable of either of those communities yeah. um, or so all Ge- of those communities. Geelong, Ballarat, and Melbourne? And Melbourne, yeah. yeah. Um, and also um, we want someone who's interested in, in those cities. So sure. the, the idea is that we help those um, councils to... Um, come up with a a problem that they want to pitch to um, the community at GovHack. So it's it's about improving, um, potentially improving something in that council. Um, ideally, where they visit or where they live. Um, but they've got to be there's got to be hopefully an interest in in improving things in that local area. Okay, um, Giselle, do you know uh, in America was there many differences between what people did in in rural areas versus um, city areas with Code for America? Definitely, and it depends also on the scale of the city and where the city is, or in this case now, um, states. Rhode Island was the first state to participate. It's the smallest state in the United States. Um, So there's definitely um, the process of 
discovering what needs to happen is the first part of the fellowship. It's called a residency, so spending time talking to the community, understanding what issues might arise. So it really varies depending on whether the community wants something public safety related or maybe it's something more internal involving records and the government. So really depends. Yeah, okay. Uh, and in terms of the um, the actual civic lab, so is this more for someone who wants to get involved casually with what Code for Australia are doing? If you've got sort of a you know a weekend or a few weeks, or you know you want to spend your annual leave doing something, um, how, how does that actually work? The civic lab. Yeah, so the civic lab is a voluntary run program where there's no really um, an agenda for it. So it's a place, um, and it's sort of the nutshell of what we do at Code for Australia, where we're bringing industry, government, and citizens together to talk about whatever their priority is. Mm. So. So one thing that um, we... Sounds like a long meeting, Alvaro. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes they are. Um, more about the pizza and the beers, though. Um, but no, like, so there, there is no really um, big agenda behind those things, and it's all about um, sharing and, and getting to know more about each other. So um, with the Open Knowledge Foundation, we've been doing um, a lot of col- collaboration and trying to get um, closer to government, but also for government to get closer to the community and really understand we both um, meet. We've also um, um, like um, forked a, a an app um, from the US. So it, it was um, a traveling app to take you from A to B, and it tells you all the. Um, um, the, t- the time, the costs, and the environmental impact of your traveling. Um, and that was something that someone raised in, in the Civic Lab that they were interested in transport, the fact that in Melbourne we don't have an app um, that does that. And we're um, waiting for some APIs to be released um, to be able to launch it in, in Melbourne. But, mm. um, yeah, th- there is really no... Um, um, uh, agenda for that, and we're more than happy to welcome anyone to to the um, the space, and and yeah, tell us what you're interested in. Okay, so if, if people were interested in, in getting involved either as a fellow or um, in Civic Lab, what's what's the best thing that they can do? So on the website there are, um, there are both links. So if you're interested in, in joining the Civic Lab, um, there is a link to join the Melbourne Civic Lab or to um, help us start a Civic Lab um, somewhere else. Um, same with the fellowship. So we've got a, an, either an application for the current fellowship but also, a, um, I guess, a register your interest for future fellowships and we are hoping to be launching a couple of fellowships next um in the next couple of months do you get a really cool uh, i love your logo do you get like a really cool kind of like badger like power rangers type suit like if you're going out to ballarat i reckon that'd go down really well that's a pretty fancy logo um congratulations to both of you i think it's a, a great project and um yeah, it'd be excellent we've actually. got got high hopes for, for, for what you can achieve both um, in the States and uh, in Australia. So thank you for coming in. No, thank, thank you. you. Fantastic. It is 7.28. Uh, you're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR, where we like to talk about tech, we like to talk about code, um, local or international, and we certainly like to talk about um, stuff that's going to be hanging off our wrists. How fantastic um, was that, by the way, those guys just then? It was really, really interesting. Sorry, I'm just um, blown away by them a little bit. Ah, no, they do that every day. <laughs> they do that every day. Um, something that you might be doing every day uh, very shortly is checking your watch um, every few minutes um, for the uh, fair boys and girls and for even most of us who just like to watch on. 
uh, Apple have released details of their iWatch and basically gone through the pantomime that they like to do uh, every time they have a, a, a big new product coming out. Uh, so we've got details on local release. Um, fairly soon you'll be able to uh, walk into an Apple store and put your orders in, and I think the orders are coming through uh, a couple of weeks later. Um, can you give us a bit of a summary of what, what an iWatch actually is and, and how it would work? Yeah, so it comes in three color, uh, three editions. There's um, Apple Watch Sport, which is the um, the base entry model. that starts at like $499. Um, Apple Watch, which is the one that they sort of advertise a lot more, which uh, starts Starts at seven hundred ninety nine dollars, and then my favourite. Um, there's the. You've 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 got one lined up, haven't you? No, oh, I actually have a very very interesting opinion on this. But the the Apple Watch edition, which is the one I want to talk a little bit about, is a eighteen carat rose or yellow gold um, watch face for fourteen thousand dollars for mm. first generation Apple product. So, <laughs> so effectively, what you're getting is something that uh, works. Does it work by itself, or it works with your intended with your smartphone? What, what, what is a watch? Is it a ecosystem onto itself? Or? So, the watch itself um, is it has a c- couple of key apps built into it, and obviously a home screen and a small interface that utilizes a digital, digital crown in order to actually navigate the screen as well as a touch screen. Um, kind of like the iDrive in the BMW. There's a bit of a yeah. thing that you kind of swizzle a little bit, play with. Yeah, something like a little Other bit like BMWs that. Yeah. Not my BMW. <laughs> Um, uh, but, yeah, the majority of the work, uh, if you go into the the, the the technology that you use to communicate between or develop for the watch is called WatchKit. It's part of the Apple SDK. Um, and that particular thing, at the moment, the majority of the implementation is communication with the watch over Bluetooth and then either sending it commands, sending it the results of computation, things like that. Um, and it's sort of not so much limited, but uh, it's, it's, it's very much a – there's a set number number of ways in which you can communicate with the watch at the moment to actually get apps on the device. Mm. Um, a lot of what you'll be doing will actually still be done on the phone and then pushed to the watch itself. But that will probably change as they sort of open it up. The way to think of it right now would be like first-gen iPhone, right, which had its own set of apps and nothing else. And then the first step that they did was start to open that up a little bit. Apps. And then it was web apps, and then it was full-blown apps, and it's sort of gone from there. Um, but from my perspective, there's actually a more interesting side to this, and it uh, it's beginning to be talked about a little bit. But I kind of um, I've sort of been thinking about it ever since the actual release or the the unveiling late last year. Let's blow the lid right off this. Come on. All right. So um, Apple is seen as in, and I can back this up. So this is a debatable topic, but I think this is accurate. Um, Apple has seen one of the, the original visions of, of the of the Apple ethos was uh, basically the bicycle of the mind. And it, it's a little bit cliche, but this idea was, and it's been cited by Steve Jobs and others in the company, that they've been really fascinated and inspired by people like Warhol, who was in turn inspired by Coca-Cola, who was saying that if you were the president or a homeless person, you'd get the same Coca-Cola. And that was a really fascinating thing. So they kind of took that idea and they made computers out of it. Coke president sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Buy a cube of that. And so... And, and so the issue here is, um, if you, especially if you look at the advertising, the cost of the iWatch aside, because the, you know, the actual first really decent model of iWatch, the one that will appeal to most people, is like a hundred dollars, uh, sorry, ten percent more, ten uh, percent less expensive than the new MacBook that they've released, right? So it's actually a really expensive um, piece of technology. But what's really scary about it, in a way, is. 
that the advertising and the way that they presented this thing is very much a fashion-based kind of advertising. And that's very different from how Apple typically has advertised their products in the past. So Apple has always oh. taken this very, look what you can do, look what you can be when you use our products. But, I mean, when you, when you look at, say, the launch of the uh, 5, 5 and 5S and what have mm-hmm. you, it was all about the colors. Like, yes, but... New launches are always very sexy and very desirable. True, but in this particular case, especially if you look at the imagery, and I, mm. I'd pull it up, but then otherwise our, our listeners would not get it the same sort of thing. All the imagery is is high-end fashion. Even with the base model stuff, it's all um, very well lit, perfect olive skin people, like leather jackets and watches and things like that. It's very, very much like... Like Malcolm Turnbull. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm. Um, uh uh, but, but very much that square jawed sort of uh, up, oh. upper market kind of thing. Now the you're pro- selling it to me. You're selling it to me. Sorry. You're selling it to no, me. No, no. This That's is great. not me selling it. This oh, is, I think okay. this is the problem. Okay. I think this is the problem, right? Because what it what it what it indicates is a move from Apple, both with the MacBook coming in these three colors and sort of looking like a high end fashion accessory, mm-hmm. um, and this new watch. And I guess the new phones as well, but particularly the watch and the way that's advertised. Um, it's moving from a company that's for the for everybody, right? Like for as many people as possible, given the cost and the price and for things the like upwardly that. mobile middle class. Well, yeah, but I mean, even there's a reason why it's the most popular selling. Like the iPhone's the most popular selling. The um, the iPad is the most popular mm. selling items in in their categories, and it's because um, people. When it comes to this tech, they've all been. Everybody's been burnt in the '90s and the early 2000s by buying cheap, crappy computers from Dell and, and things like that. And so there is definitely a sense that the price that you're paying for it is buying you extra. Mm. And no matter what you were doing, you were always getting the same product. And the differential was like how much space you wanted or what size you wanted. It wasn't. That's perceived. Eighteen carat gold for an item, right? Yeah. That's the that's the difference. That's perceived value. I mean, they they put counterweights in the in the iPhones, and it's all kind of sure. you know crafted to make you feel like a- that's what you're getting. Absolutely, but, but, but I agree that the idea of that it's the egalitarian kind of you know mass consumer item for what, everyone. What concerns me is. I'd be. Cons- I'm worried that Apple is moving away from this idea of trying to target as many people as possible because ultimately that's what they do, right? Yeah. They try to target as many people as possible to sell the most number of units, and that's their ethos from the design all the way through to manufacturing, all the way through to their actual supply pipeline. It's about maximizing the number of sales they can actually make, but sure. you know, by with a specific product um, ethos. Now, the iWatch to me, the Apple Watch looks like a a shift to catering almost exclusively for upper middle class and above. And that concerns me because in our current climate where there's lots of discussions around uh, both the rise of China and and, and the rise of the upper middle class in China um, versus, uh, you know, the growing wealth inequality in Western countries, Mm. I'm concerned that Apple's super smart internal teams are picking up on stuff that maybe some of us aren't picking up on, which is the future of their company only lies in the the most expensive um, markets. Now, the other reason why this is bad is because and I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, but the other reason why this is bad is it seems as though we seem to be shaping up into this two-tier, like this duopoly weirdness where we have two operating systems that really matter. One is uh, one uh, set of operating systems designed by Google, and the other one is a set of operating systems by Apple. Now, these companies operate very, very differently. Apple, for whether or not you believe them, their 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 marketing message and the, the things that they say in their privacy policies and things like that, and indeed the recent report that came out from The Intercept which said that there was a multi-year government campaign to break the encryption on Apple devices. 
Apple is very much your privacy is your data, and they try to push that as much as possible. And there are some examples to it there where they don't succeed very well, mm. but that's the message that they're pushing. Mm. On the other hand, you've got Google, which wants to give stuff away for free, and a lot of it is based on, like, you know, you sell your, your data and stuff to whoever wants it, essentially. Mm. And what's concerning to me is that we'll have this two-tier system. These companies won't work together because they're, you know, mortal yeah. enemies. Um, but one of them is for people, you know, for the everyday. So we, we won't be able to afford privacy. That's right. Where That's where I'm exactly going with yeah. that. And that really concerns me yeah. quite a lot. Rightly so. Um, we should probably have a look at some of the, the competitors <laughs> and features. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, we are, we, are, we are the home of tech rats, Kate, so you're uh, well, well, God, well yeah, within yeah, um, yeah. the bounds there. <laughs> so you can, get, you can get the fancy guy. Um, there's a lot of other cheaper ones as well. So if you want to go low-budget, lo-fi, um, if you like carrying around a burner like it's 2008, um, you can get into some other stuff. There's the uh, there's the Pebble Watch for around three hundred. So I that's, back that's the Pebble a bit Watch. Better. Fantastic. Good to get on that one early. There's the um, if you like a kind of more of a retro kind of Casio look. There's the uh, Asus Zen Watch. Um, you've got the LG Watcher Bane. Um, if you're more of a Gap shopper, kind of like to hang out at the golf club, <laughs> that's the one for you. Um, and if you go into the Grand Prix next week, probably get the Moto three sixty. It looks kind of sexy and black and like uh, like a gear knob. Um, so there are a lot of different ones. Probably uh, a nice way to bookmark the the rather sort of serious tone you um, brought to the studio just then was maybe Onion's take on um, why you should get a watch or not, uh, an iWatch. Um, the 13 megapixel camera <laughs> enables users to take crystal clear pictures of your wrist, yeah. uh, allows wearers uh, to start and stop uh, the flow of time, not actually true. Um, uh, comes in a variety of colours and styles to express your personal submission to the planet's dominant tech company, uh, as Kay just pointed out. Uh, adjustable <laughs> ticking volume, which is important. Uh, no one likes to have that watch ticking on the bedside table in a hotel. Always annoying. Or you want it to be as loud as possible in an elevator or something. Yeah, hey, check out what's ticking. Um, all the convenience of a traditional watch that needs to be charged every 12 hours. I think we found out that it's about 18 hours, which is not actually much better. Um, small size and intricate circuitry, able to drive twice as many Chinese workers to suicide as an iPhone. That's actually brutal, that particular one. Pretty pretty cruel. It actually is. Uh, so uh, if you are interested, though, um, you'll be able to check it out um, by going to the Apple Store um, around April 10. Uh, I think you can um, mosey on down there. Uh, we'll start camping out from, from now, um, if you're that sad. Um, you can <laughs> have it ordered. and in, really painting in, a great picture here. <laughs> in your hands or, or, or around the thing that's attached to your hand by April 24. I actually just after think my they're really month, exciting. So. I think they're really exciting. Like the whole idea of this kind of thing is interesting. I just it's more the execution that's concerning to me. Oh yeah, I totally get that. Um, I, I think that was um, that was all good. Uh, is it grill to the mist? Mist to the grill. I always forget. That's a metaphor I'll never use again. <laughs> Having just used it now on, on radio. That's a metaphor I'll never use again. <laughs> Having just used it now on, on radio. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR. We've actually just been having a bit of a look at um, advertising in the break for uh, iWatch, and it is, I will concede, uh, fairly sexy and, and kind of um, aspirational, Kate. Okay. Extremely aspirational. Uh, we always aspire to give you uh, good events and good juice on what's coming up in Melbourne uh, if you like your tech. And there's some interesting stuff coming up. Uh, one of the things that you're involved in, Cade, uh, CSS Conference is coming up. Um, I understand you've just run out of tickets, more or less. But we sold out this afternoon. That's pretty good. Pretty exciting. Um, yeah, so CSS Conf uh, is on the 26th and 27th of March of this month uh, at Melbourne Meat Market. Uh, we're doing two days of these, I guess, just 
front-end web stuff, right? Like designers, we have a whole range of people from Stripe and Airbnb and uh, people who've worked at Tumblr and um, Getty Images and local people from um, places like Thick and things like that. We have a whole range of different people, um, two days' worth of speakers um, who are coming from all around the world to actually just talk about their craft, talk about different things that they're interested in. Um, we have just sold out this afternoon, and that's really, really exciting. Um, but what we are looking at doing is firstly holding an event on the Saturday called Decompress, so that's Saturday the 27th, uh, sorry, the 28th, and that event is for, it's a $20 event that people can come to and actually see. Um, and we also have a pre-conference social, if you like, at the very newly opened Bar Tronica um, in Flinders Lane in Melbourne, and that's open for everybody to come and visit, so that should be pretty exciting. Um, the website for it is 2015.cssconf, C-O-N-F, that is, .com.au. And if you are really interested in, I guess, meeting the cutting edge of, of web design and development, uh, yeah, there is a waiting list because on occasion uh, we'll get some tickets come up. We had a few come up last year. And, yeah, it's pretty exciting actually <laughs> maybe you could uh maybe um j- jump on our facebook page and just if you're interested in being on the waiting list maybe we'll see if we can get some bite into it listeners in the door if something yeah. happens <laughs> i realize it's a challenge um so is there anything in particular like sort of um taking your kind of event sort of organizer hat off is there anything in particular that you think is a great session that you you sort of either haven't covered before in the conference or is particularly a, a good coup for css call so there's a few and i was on the voting committee so i'm, I'm very biased All right. um the one that i'm really interested in is um uh, by una kravetz and it's uh open source design call to arms it ties in really neatly with um code for america and people like that who were just in before um and it's basically it seems to be a talk around um designers getting involved in open source and it was a, a kind of an issue that we have a lot in uh i guess coming from a design background uh, we have a lot of issues working with engineers on open source projects and so this talk um looks incredible looks to sort of point people in the direction of how to actually do that there's other ones too um there's uh, uh what's a great one type uh typography that we've got uh talk on typography that's really quite excellent around like actually drawing from earlier periods of typography to uh i guess implement your type in, in a website cool. um, there's a whole range of different things it's actually really exciting yeah <laughs> just you asked me for one and i can't give you one it's okay, just no. all great you, yeah. gave, you gave us a few and they're all worth checking out <laughs> uh another thing that's worth checking out is uh, info exchange which is a great initiative helping with uh, digital literacy and getting all australians um to a place where they can um comfortably work there the i watch is um doing a thing called <laughs> youth spark career pathways um if you're aged between 18 and 26 and interested in, in doing something uh, in the technology space or in uh, information technology um, it can be a challenge for, for anyone to, to get in but if you're from a background that um has made it particularly hard or um, you are sort of starting from a little bit behind, Info Exchange wants to hear from you. So We, we also have um, stuff at um, CSS Conf, like a diversity program as well. But, um, yeah. Cool. Um, so if you just get in touch with us about that, we'll put the thing up on the website for sure. Yeah, Great. Exactly, exactly the same thing. Um, so, yeah, if you have a strong interest in IT, um, if you are willing to learn, work with uh, trainers, employers, colleagues, so you've got to be, um, you know, fairly uh, collaborative. Um, and I guess sort of um, a willingness to learn, uh, which is always important sort of around that age. So um, have energy, have passion for the work. 
Um, and there's a few other things on there. Um, so just some basic sort of criteria. But if you would like to work uh, in this space um, and you kind of felt it was beyond your reach, um, InfoExchange uh, have the Youth Spark Career Pathways um, open at the moment. So if you head to infoexchange.net.au um, and look for Youth Spark, uh, you'll be able to see that. And we'll be sure that we um, link to that uh, after the show as well. Um, one thing that is uh, deserving of uh, an award in itself um, is the Anzias. Uh, they're actually an annual event uh, celebrating the achievements of organisations, businesses and individuals uh, that have made a contribution um, to the development and use of the internet uh, in the ANZ region. Uh, so if you're, uh, um, if you're doing something good, um, it could be something in your back shed, um, it could be working as part of a, a large organisation or, or, or an NGO or anything like that um, who excel in delivering uh, accessible, innovative, informative and secure resources. Uh, to people all over the internet uh, of, of uh, sort of all backgrounds, uh, all operating systems and all abilities, um, the ANZIAs are now open. So I think you've got until uh, around the 15th of May um, to get your entry in. Um, I don't think it's too uh, expensive, um, so it's something that's definitely worth checking out. Um, yeah. I love that they encourage companies who and for-profit initiatives to donate their cash prizes. That's pretty cool. I like that a lot. That is super cool. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to the last few moments of Bite Into It on Triple R uh, tonight with Cade and Warren. Um, Cade, it's been fun hanging out. It's been amazing. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the listeners out there and especially to our guests, uh, Alvaro and Giselle from Code for Australia and Code for America. Uh, we've been Bite Into It. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. You can find the podcast uh, when we get some of those bad boys up there on rr.org.au slash Bite Into It and we'll post links uh, in the episode notes for, for the show. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.